Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5. 66 books to the Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, just grab that blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And uh, you can turn to page, uh, well, I don't know the page, the first book of the Bible, chapter 5. So we're, we're going to have a, a senior pastor event here. I like to move around, and I've got like this much lane, so just be looking out for that. It should make it more interesting this morning. A group of Florida senior citizens were talking about their ailments. My arm's so weak that I can hardly hold this cup of coffee. Now, someone else chimed in, yeah, I know, but my cataracts are getting so bad that I can barely see it. Another one said, yeah, well, I can barely look down at my cup of coffee because of the arthritis in my neck. To which a woman said, yeah, isn't getting old pretty hard? But the optimists in the group, you know, you got to love the optimists, don't you? The optimists said, well, yeah, that's all bad, but it's not all bad, is it? at least we can still drive. (laughs) I tell you, I remember being stopped at an intersection in Chicago, and I'm in this little Ford Taurus looking off to my right at this big Dodge Ram 2500. And as I look up through the window, there's this older woman. She must be in her mid-90s, and she is just grinning from ear to ear. She's so short that she can't even see over the steering wheel. She's looking through the top of the dash and the bottom of the steering wheel, and she's hooked up to oxygen. And I just thought to myself, good for you. (laughs) And then I took a left turn to get out of harm's way. (laughs) Is age catching up with you? Are you no longer the man or woman you used to be? How do you know that you've made it over the hill and you're starting on that downward slope? Well, here are some common signs. Everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. (laughs) The gleam in your eyes is from the sun hitting your bifocals. You keep repeating yourself. Your children begin to look middle-aged. Your mind makes contracts that your body cannot deliver on. You keep repeating yourself. You look forward to a dull evening. Your favorite part of the newspaper is 20 years ago today. You know all of the restaurants with early bird specials. You turn out the lights for economic rather than romantic reasons. You sit in a rocking chair, but you can't get it going. Your knees buckle, but your belt won't. You keep repeating yourself. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who is this young buck to talk to me about being old? Well, i got to tell you, my doctor has me on a geriatric plan already, mainly because Katie said that I keep repeating myself. (laughs) But seriously, you think you've got problems? Imagine if you lived 900 years. When we come to Genesis 5, we read about these 10 men, and Moses tells us that the average lifespan for these guys was 900. Years Now, you might be amazed by that and say, wow, I mean, is that even possible? We'll get to that a little later on. But the important thing is to not miss the main point. It's not about a bunch of old guys. The main point is that living life, living your life, according to God's plan and purposes, is the best way to live. It's the better way to live. 
We talked about two ways to live last week. This is the second way to live, and it's better because ultimately life without God goes bankrupt, but life with God, uh, when we live with him, we find ourselves on sure footing. So let's take a look at this. We'll pick up with the first three verses of Genesis 5. The text tells us, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man uh, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. Now let's think about this for a moment. We're in this story. Uh, what is Moses' purpose of repeating some of these things? When you think uh, about it, when things get bad in relationships, it can be important to hear that certain foundational things are still true. Uh, any parenting book that's worth its salt tells you that after you've disciplined one of your children, you should go back and say, I love you. Well, why do you need to do that? Because the child might walk away and ask the question, does mommy and daddy still love me? So you sit them down, you look them in the eye, and you say, you know, son, you knew that mixing all of those scientific chemicals into the blender in the kitchen wasn't a great idea. And that's why we had to call the fire department. But daddy still loves you. There's nothing that you could ever do that would take away mommy or daddy's love. Now you sit there and think, well, is that unnecessary? Of course that's true. They should just know that. But the problem is... They might not, unless you say it. Now, God, through Moses, is doing something similar here in Genesis chapter 5. Remember what's happened in Genesis. Everything's become unglued. Adam and Eve have disobeyed God's command. What's still true about their relationship? What is foundationally important for them to understand in the way that they can connect with the Creator? And I think Moses is telling us, he's reaffirming two things. He's saying, one, God is saying, I am your Father because I created you in my image. And two, I still intend to bless you. Now look at verses 1 to 3. God is your Father. Moses wants us to see that the relationship between Seth and Adam is similar to the relationship between Adam and God. So Moses tells us that God named Adam. And likewise, Adam named Seth. Just as Adam and Eve are made in the likeness of God, Seth is made in the likeness of Adam. Not only is Adam the father of Seth and Seth the father of Enosh and so on, but God is the father of them all. And this point is made explicit in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 in that genealogy. Luke endpoints that genealogy 3.38 as he's talking about this lineage, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. God is your father. Now, several weeks ago in my Thrive Group, we were discussing that the difference between faith and feelings. I'm sure you've thought these questions before. Should I feel things for God? Uh, is it a problem if I'm not feeling anything for God? You know, I sometimes wonder if Christians don't minimize feelings a little bit. It's almost as if feelings don't matter in Christianity in some circles. And while it's true that faith should not be led by feelings, it's also true that 
Faith should be followed by feelings. It should come alongside of faith. So that if you come to know God by faith, walk with God, worship God, you should experience affections for God. Your heart should be stirred by God. But you say to yourself, well, what if I've never felt anything for God before in my life? I'd say that's a problem. If you were sitting with me at the counseling table and said, what if I've never felt anything before for my wife or children? I'd say that's a problem. We should feel things when we are cultivating a relationship. And as we were having this discussion, Katie reminded the group of a profound point. She said that sometimes our feelings for God are stifled precisely because we are supposed to relate to him as father. What if you did not have a good relationship with your father if he was emotionally cold, distant, distracted, or you never knew him? Could that impact your feelings toward God? Absolutely. So to cherish God and to appreciate God, we must dive into his word and start to know what he is like, not like what he was like. We also see in Genesis 5, 2, that Moses returns to the theme of God's blessing. Much had been forfeited when Adam and Eve had sinned, but God says, I still intend to bless you. In fact, as we move forward, we're going to see that he'll renew this blessing over and over again. He renews it in Genesis chapter 9 to Noah and his sons, then to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, then to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. He also says that through Abraham, that blessing is going to extend to all of the world. One commentator says this, the picture that emerges is that of a loving father ensuring the future well-being of his children through the provision of an inherited blessing. God's original plan of blessing for all humankind, though thwarted by human folly, will nevertheless be restored through the seed of the woman. That's Genesis 3.15. The seed of Abraham, Genesis 12. And then the lion of the tribe of Judah, which if you have some time, look up Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. And then cross-reference that with Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 to 13. Now, who meets this profile? Only one. One and only one. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the eternal places. Now, it's not a blessing, you know, some of us sometimes hear that God's going to bless us and we think our bank account's going to grow larger or we're never going to get sick here on this earth. It's not a temporal blessing. This is an eternal blessing. This means that God has something destined for you, intended for you, for all of eternity, and it all comes to you through one and only one person. Jesus. All right. Let's uh, make our way now through this list of people. I believe in reading all of the scriptures, so we're going to read this genealogy together. Some of you uh, just commit yourselves to praying for me. If I've ever offended you, don't pray for me. So Genesis chapter 4. Uh, The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. 
When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he had fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Uh, Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Now let's skip over Enoch and let's come back to him. Verse 28, when Methuselah, or 25, excuse me, Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he had fathered Lamech 782 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief uh, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he had fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right. So let's take a few moments uh, to make some observations about this genealogy. I, first, I want you to notice that there's certain things repeated in the genealogy. Look uh, there at verses 12 to 14, and you can follow with me here. Uh, so we're told the age of the father at the birth of his son. So we have Kenan. He lived 70 years. Um, and then we're told the name of the son, Mahalalel. And then we're told how many years after the son the father had lived, 840 years. And then um, we are told the total lifespan of that father, which is 910 years in this instance. Now, as we're looking at this genealogy, it covers at least um, 1,656 years. When people are looking at these genealogies, they're asking the question, um, is this a, a tight chronology? Does that mean that you know, so-and-so fathered so-and-so and that's a direct father-son relationship? Or does father mean like great-great-great-grandfather or something like that? And it's very common in the Bible for that to be the case. But when we look at this genealogy, the construction of the list makes it sound as if this is a tight chronology. It's a literal genealogy of people. And there's a couple of th reasons I say this. We know that Adam was the literal father of Seth, and Seth was the literal father of Enosh. But at the end of the list, we also see that Noah is the literal father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So if there's gaps, it's somewhere in this list. And any other place that we have to kind of correlate this list, so if you're looking at 1 Chronicles chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3, they maintain these same names. But the main point, if there's gaps or not, is this, and this is what we don't want to miss, that you can trace the promised seed as it's going forward from Adam to Noah. That's the big point. 
God wants you to see that his promise is moving forward and it's going to continue to move all the way down to the person of Jesus. Let's talk about these ages for a moment. How about these guys, huh? Adam, 930. Seth, 912. Enosh, 905. And on and on we go. Enoch is the young buck amongst them. You know, he just barely made it to 365. Notice that, like we said, the average age is 900 years. Uh, how do we take these lifespans? Is it figurative, symbolic? Do these guys really live this long? Well, when you make your way over to Genesis 11, you'll notice that the lifespans start rapidly declining. You know, you compare those two lists and it, it goes very quickly. So I would suggest to you that this is a literal list, that these men actually lived this amount of time. Bible students speculate why that could be. Could it be that things were different prior to the flood? Uh, I think that it has something to do with the effects of decay and disease. So sin took its time spreading, and uh, it took its time to incur that physical uh, those physical effects that cause death in us, like sickness and cancer and those types of things. I don't think that these individuals suffered in the same way we do today. And this is what Moses wants us to see because of this in Genesis 5. He wants us to see that sin is causing gradual decay that leads to death. The most repeated refrain in this entire genealogy is, and he died. The Hebrew is a resounding single word, died. Adam lived 930 years, died. Seth, 912 years, died. Methuselah, just 31 years shy of a millennium, died. It's like a steady drumbeat. The serpent said, not you shall surely die. But God would vindicate his word. God always keeps his promises. He's always true to his commands. You shall surely die. Romans 5.12 tells us just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Verse 14 of Romans, death reigned. From Adam to Moses, and so on and so forth, and he died will be the repeated refrain over every single living person's life all throughout this world. From the time of everything becoming unglued until the time that Jesus returns again. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you have lots of money or you don't have two nickels to uh, rub together. It doesn't matter if you were educated at Harvard or if you didn't make it past the third grade. It doesn't matter if you're super healthy or if you blend McDonald's Happy Meals into a blender and drink it out of a straw on your couch. And he died will be the repeated refrain. Though you can do things to help you get there sooner. Now how certain is the fact of your death? It's so certain that there is an industry built around the expectation of your death. It's called life insurance. I mean, you buy life insurance because you know that you're going to die someday. If you didn't think you were going to die someday, you wouldn't buy life insurance. But you pay money precisely because you know that you will die. 
You just don't know when. I think this is the ironic thing with life insurance. Okay, get this. They are betting that I'm going to live 20 years. I'm betting that I'm going to live less. So, you know, it's kind of like one of those things like, I hope that they win that bet. You know what I'm saying? Um, But this is the main point that you don't want to miss. Life insurance is based on one great theological truth. Death reigns. When you die, the coroner will fill out a death certificate for you. There's a space on the certificate that says cause of death. And if we understand the Bible clearly, the answer is always the same, sin. It's not sickness, it's not cancer, it's not an accident, it's not old age, even if you lived for 900 years. Those are all merely symptoms of the one great cause of death, sin. Now interestingly though, There is something peculiar that happens in this genealogy. Uh, You know the line, well, nothing is as certain as death and taxes, and as a rule, that statement is true, especially the taxes part. But then we read about this guy named Enoch. Look there at verses 21 and 24. Uh, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. I mean, how peculiar. We're told of every other individual on this list, and he died. But then we get to Enoch, and we're told, and he was not. Hebrews 11.5 makes clear that Enoch didn't die. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. I mean, why in the world would God make an exemption for him? We look at a couple of things here. Um, First, I want you to notice that Enoch is intentionally placed in a dramatic position here. He's the seventh son in the line of Seth. Who was the seventh son in the line of Cain? Evil Lamech. Lamech, who was the polygamist. Lamech, who made the poem about murdering a young man because he had offended him. So bloodthirsty Lamech is compared with the man who walked with God and he was not for God, took him once again two ways to live. Human achievement versus the life of faith, the eternal antithesis, the difference between heaven and hell, exponential death, and unbounded life. So what made Enoch different? Enoch walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? One pastor notes that walking can be defined as a series of small steps in the same direction over a long period of time. That sounds a lot like discipleship to me. I love how Eugene Peterson talks of discipleship. It is a long obedience in the same direction. It's such a useful, helpful metaphor because it, it paints a clear picture of what God intends for our life to be like. What does it look like when you're walking with someone? Uh, Well, first of all, you have to be going in the same direction as them. I mean, if Katie and I set out for a walk and uh, we don't make all of our turns together, we won't be walking together. Say we uh, approach an intersection and we had intended to turn right, but there's a squirrel over to the left, so I take off left. And then Katie goes off to the right. We're no longer together. 
And the same can be true for our spiritual journey. We have to keep turning with God along the way. I mean, some of us jump into a walk with God for a season, but then there comes these these critical junctures, these turning points where it starts seeming like it would be more appealing to turn off left, to take control of my life, to pursue a career, to get distracted with life, and God's turning right. Well, what can happen there? You get distracted, you start moving away from him. To walk with God, we have to move in the same direction he's moving. Uh, You also have to be content to keep the same pace. Isn't it frustrating to walk? I mean, I could hop in my car, I could get somewhere in five minutes that would require one hour of time for me to walk and get there. But here's the thing, if you haven't learned this yet, it's time to let it sink in. God's not in a rush to get anywhere. Never. I'm always in a rush. I want God to develop my character. I want him to expand my influence so that I'm seeing more people come to Christ. I want him to speed up my comprehension of the Bible and scripture memorization and make me a robust prayer warrior and on and on it goes. And God says, whoa, wait a minute. We're walking here. I mean, I know that you're eager to get there, but remember, the walk is more than just about arriving somewhere. It's about building a relationship. You and me. Let's talk. Let's slow down. Let's enjoy the view. God doesn't tend to work in instantaneous. He doesn't use the microwave. He likes to use the slow cooker. So we need to keep his pace. What does that mean for you? Well, it means that every morning that when you wake up and pray, you shouldn't pray something like, God, this is what I'm going to do today. How do you feel about that? Are you coming with me? No. Lord, where are you heading today? I'd like to head there with you. I had a dinner with a couple of friends, Mike and Anne-Marie Allen, and they were uh, just kind of talking about where they're at in life. And Anne-Marie shared that she felt called to this new type of ministry that she called a ministry of availability. The idea was simple. She wakes up every day with no agenda. She just says, God, what, what do you want me to do today? I'm available. I love that. She's not setting the agenda. And she said, you know, it's the strangest thing. There's all these unexpected opportunities. I mean, just imagine that. I wonder what would happen if more of us practiced the ministry of availability. This is how I envision Enoch. Wherever God went, Enoch went. Small steps, the same direction, 300 years of faithful consistency. And Hebrews 11.5 adds this wonderful comment. Enoch was commended as having pleased God. I want my gravestone to say that. Rob pleased God. The thing that I love about pursuing that end is that it takes all of the pressure off. I'm just going to be real for a moment. I can't please all of you. I can't please everyone in this community. I can't please all of my family members. But there is an audience of one who is looking down, evaluating my life, and I want to please him. I want to do things his way. Enoch's life also resoundingly tells us that death doesn't get to have the final word. Next week, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. 
So God said, look, right? You shall surely die. But in Genesis 3.15, he adds this escape clause. Eve will give birth to a son who will defeat Satan by extension, sin and death. Satan scored a temporary victory. God gets the eternal victory. I mean, think about it. Before any of these Old Testament saints know anything about Jesus, there's no New Testament yet. They're looking at the life of Enoch and they're seeing that God has provided some kind of escape clause. So who is it? Jesus is the escape clause. John 5, 24, he declared, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He also says in John eleven twenty five 25, and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I recently read the story of a Chinese woman whose husband had been put in prison. It was 1965 because of his Christian testimony. One morning, God impressed on her that her husband was going to die, and her response was remarkable. She got up early, sang songs, and had a happy face. Others in the prison which she was kept felt that this was strange, saying, why is this old lady so happy? Afterwards, the prison authorities informed her that her husband had died and she could come to get his body. She went singing all the way and got her husband's body still singing and laughing. The people who saw her thought she was crazy or that she must have had a terrible relationship with her husband. She answered, When a hen gathers her newly hatched chicks, she certainly won't cry over the broken eggshells. She can only be happy for the chicks. Now my husband has left the shell of his body and has gone to the most beautiful place there is. Why shouldn't I be happy? Why could she sing? Because her husband had opted to take the escape clause. He had trusted Jesus, which meant that and he died did not hold the same meaning for him, which it doesn't have to hold the same meaning for you either. Have you trusted Jesus as your escape clause? You know, even after sin has unglued everything in your life, the Bible is saying over and over again that God can pull it back together through his grace and mercy, through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Enoch might be peculiar in this genealogy, but his experience doesn't have to be peculiar if you trust Jesus, if you take God's escape clause. But maybe you think to yourself, well, that's all well and good and stuff, and you're preaching this Bible stuff, but it's too late for me. I mean, I've been living a lot of life. I've been moving along in this world, and I've not taken God's escape clause. I haven't done anything meaningful for him. How is God going to uh, glue everything back together in my life? Wait a moment. I want you to take a deeper look at Enoch's life with me. I want you to notice something very specific that Moses tells us in verses 21 and 22. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, what? After he fathered Methuselah. You see that? He's not different from you and me. I mean, 65 years. 
years of walking without God. Of a life that was probably reflective of everyone else in that culture. And the Bible tells us that this day and age was a very ungodly day and age. You might be asking yourself, well, what happened? I mean, what would cause him to change his mind? Uh, I can tell you it wasn't because he started receiving Social Security at 65. No. The Bible tells us that it had something to do with a birth of a son. Methuselah. I mean, why would that change? Why would Methuselah change his worldview? Um, they say that a lot happens when you become a father, don't they? You hold that precious child and all of a sudden your life just kind of radically flashes before your eyes and you say, I've got all this responsibility. And, and then they start growing up and they're running around naked with mud all over them. And you're just like, how am I supposed to get that to a mature adult? You start feeling helpless. Uh, there's a member here, Dan Lusco, and he likes to tell his testimony. Dan um, grew up and uh, he was never churched. Um, he went through the scientific route of education, so he became a pretty strong atheist through most of his, the, the first part of his life. But all of a sudden, you know, life started happening. He got married, had children. You know, the weight of those things start pressing down. And over in that time period, uh, Mary, Dan's wife, said, hey, we need to get into a church. She was invited by some people, so they started going to Max Licato's church in Texas. And uh, while they were at this church, uh, Dan remembers the thought that Max Licato gave that finally kind of broke down his walls. Licato was sharing the gospel, and he says, do you want to be a better husband, a better son, a better father to your children? Well, Jesus is willing to come into your life and radically change you so that you can be those things. And Dan processed that challenge and he started reflecting and he knew right then and there he couldn't do this by himself. He needed a God who would come alongside and help, a God who intended good for him, a God who had his best interests in mind. And so he walked forward. And i got to tell you, Dan Lusco is a great man. He loves his family. He's a good friend of mine. Jesus radically changed his life. Maybe, though, Enoch experienced something similar. Maybe that's what happened in his life. However, as you look at the name Enoch gave to his son, we also see something deeper here. The meaning of the name Methuselah is an interesting study. There's two different translations that are possible. The name could be composed of the words math, meaning man or male, and shelak, meaning missile or weapon. So his name would mean man of the javelin, which sounds pretty tough. I'd like that name. On the other hand, Methuselah could be made up of the words muth, which means die or dead, and shelak, meaning sent. And in that case, it would be translated, when he dies, it shall come. I mean, what does that mean? Well, it could be that Enoch had received some kind of prophetic vision, some kind of revelation at the time of Methuselah's birth of a destruction that was coming via a worldwide flood. And if this genealogy is correct, and we're doing the math here, Genesis 5 tells us that Methuselah lived 969 years and died the year that the flood came. Enoch notes Ray Stemnan. We are told in June, Jude, 
was given a revelation from God. He saw the direction of the divine movement, looked on to the end of the culture, the comforts, the mechanical marvels of his own day, to the fact that there must come an inevitable judgment on the principle of evil in human life. He saw the certainty of destruction of a world living only to please itself. And this is why he named Methuselah, when he dies, it will come. But think also of this. God's incredibly patient. You know, you tend to think of the flood, and I don't know where you're at as you think about that, but when you think of it, it kind of just sounds like this cataclysmic event that just kind of burst forth on the scene. It didn't. If this is right, God patiently waited a thousand years so that Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and Noah could preach. It's incredible when you think about it. Let's tie it all together. Consider a couple of applicational thoughts. It's good to hear God's word. It's way, way better to do God's word, right? So let me ask a couple of questions of you this morning. If you were struggling to know God as Father because of your own history, your past, how can you better grow to know God's character? I just want to suggest two things. Christians have been doing this for thousands of years. One, cultivate a prayer life. Prayer is how we connect with God. How do I do that? Well, short, get into a Thrive group, connect with a mature believer, and let them help you along in that. Secondly, read his word. It tells us about who God is. I so appreciate Eugene Peterson's paraphrase on James 1, 16 and 18. Don't get thrown off course. Every desirable and beneficial gift comes out of heaven. The gifts are rivers of light cascading down from the Father of light. There's nothing deceitful in God, nothing two-faced, nothing fickle. He brought us to life using the true word showing us off as the crown of all his creation. Wow. That doesn't sound like a bad father at all. Second, if and he died will be true for all of us, how can you live with the end in mind? This may sound a little morbid, but Jonathan Edwards at 19 resolved to think much and on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 10 and 12, 70 years are given to us. Uh, some even live to 80. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. In the Middle Ages, it was not uncommon for scholars to keep a skull on their desk to remind them that they must die. The Latin name for such a skull was memento mori. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of you get a skull and put it on your desk. That's really creepy, and my counseling load went way down when I did that. But maybe from time to time, go back and read Genesis 5 is God's memento mori. What is he trying to say to you? And then with that in mind, back, the, back it up. What do I need to do to be in the right position with God as I move forward? Finally, it's never too late to start walking with God. Are you ready to change your mind today and start walking with him by placing your faith in Jesus? If walking with God will be the measure of our life, then you must get to the business of walking with God. 
The great hymn reminds us, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The most important question that you can ever ask yourself in this life is this, have I placed my faith in Jesus? The second most important question that you can ever ask yourself in this life is, am I faithfully following Jesus? If you can answer yes to both of those questions, then you get what this life is all about. If you cannot answer yes, then you need to ask yourself, how do I get to yes? So let's do this. I'm going to ask Kimo to come up and just play a little music. And uh, as we're closing down, I want to give you a moment to kind of reflect on what I've said this morning. We've covered a lot of ground, but don't miss the main point. How do I get to yes? How do I get to faith in Christ and faithfully following Jesus with my life? Maybe as you're thinking through those questions, you say to yourself, I don't know. I don't know where I am. I don't know if I've ever trusted Jesus. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And I'm not asking people to bow their heads this morning. Um, You know, I think that it's important sometimes for us to respond visually in front of other people and say, you know, it, it matters what I do and part of faith is also courage. So I want to ask you this morning if, if you have trusted Jesus as you heard the gospel or if you're saying to yourself, I need to just faithfully follow him, I want to encourage you to stand up right now in the presence of these people and say, I intend to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Others, thank you.